So we're going to be in uh, John chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. So turn there in your Bibles if you have them. It's on page 883 if you're using a, using a pew Bible. So, doctrine of the incarnation, God uh, becomes a man. So, car- carne, carne means meat or flesh, um, like carne asada. And so, so uh, the incarnation is the doctrine of God becoming flesh, be- becoming a, a human being. And so, again, John has already established in the first five verses that Jesus is God, that he is the word, that he is eternally existing uh, with the Father. And so now he's going to kind of take that and say, not only is Jesus God, but we're going to take this, this Christ, this Jesus that we've established as God, and see him integrating himself, becoming uh, a human, and kind of coming into human history. Now, um, we're going to kind of explore that doctrine as we go, but it's very important to understand the nature of, of Christ, right? The, it's called Christology. There's a whole field of theology about it. Right, when Jesus became a man, he didn't stop being God. It's not like his humanity in any sense uh, o- you know, overwhelmed or canceled out his divinity. Jesus is not part God and part man. He's not all God and some man or all man and some God. He's fully God and fully man. Nothing about Jesus' godness negates his manness. Nothing about his divinity negates his humanity, or vice versa. Nothing about his humanity negates his divinity. So, so the doctrine of the incarnation is that uh, Jesus is fully God, fully man, at the exact uh, same time. So John is going to explain, we're going to see that Jesus is the, the true light which comes into the world, and Jesus is the word that has become flesh. That's going to be what we see uh, as, we, as we work through this. And the reason why it's particularly relevant at during Advent is because the, the doctrine of the incarnation is essentially what we're celebrating at Christmas. Um, you know, we may or may not be thinking intentionally about the doctrine of the incarnation all season long as we, as we celebrate, but that's when, when you kind of the nativity, shepherds, angels, you know, animals, wise men, all that, right? Like essentially what you're looking at when you celebrate Christmas is God himself in human form as an infant, as a, as a baby. And so, you know, I mean, theologically speaking, I think it's, it would not be inaccurate to rebrand Christmas um, incarnation day or something like that. And it would not be inaccurate to, to, you know, call the Christmas season, the season of the incarnation. Um, as it were. And so we're going to think together. We're going to talk about the, the doctrine of the incarnation and what John has to tell us about it from these uh, nine or ten verses in chapter one. Let's start in verse nine, and we'll read it and then pray. It says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your perfect, sufficient, inspired, inerrant word. And Lord, we pray, we ask humbly, we pray that you would use your word this morning to speak to us and to change us and to form us and to make us more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So John is building on the foundation that he set up in the first eight verses, right? Verse four, we see Jesus was the light of men. Verse five, Jesus, the light that shines in the darkness. Verses seven through eight, John, the Baptist, bears witness about the light uh, that is Jesus. And so uh, John is, is building this um, foundation that Jesus is light. And he's, he's establishing a motif that's really going to run all through the rest of his writings in the, in the, the New Testament. Uh, the idea of light versus darkness. And so in John 3, we see that light has come into the world, but the world loved darkness. The world hated the light because it didn't want its evil deeds to be exposed. John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. John 12, the light uh, is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may become the sons of light. This light and darkness we see all throughout the Gospel of John and throughout the other writings of John. The, the The first of John's three letters First John chapter 1, we read, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then in 1 John 2, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever says he is in the light, but hates his brother, is still in darkness. So light and darkness recurring over and over and over, Jesus is the light of the world who shines his light onto the dark world and, and lights it up and casts out the, the darkness. So that's the, that's the theme that John has set up. So Jesus is the true light who has come into the world, which is significant, right? Jesus coming into the world is significant. Maybe not um, at first glance until we read it in context, because people <coughs> people go places all the time, right? We we got up and and came to this church building this morning. We we came into the church building this morning. So so what's so significant about Jesus coming into the the world? Verse ten says he was in the world, uh, and the world was made 
through him. So the significance or what's, what's re- particularly remarkable about Jesus coming into the world is that he was coming into a place that he created, that he fashioned with his own hands, right? God, in order for God to become a man and to come into the world, into human history, uh, Jesus had to, in humility, condescend and become a part of that very thing that he had created, right? When you, when you create something, there is this like categorical difference between you and that thing. You're higher than it, you're over it, you're above it, you're in control of it. The nature of having created the world means that Jesus existed above the world, outside the world, the, the rules and boundaries of time and space and being in the world. None of those things applied to Jesus. He transcended them. He was above them. But at the incarnation, Jesus, though he was God, he took humanity to himself. He voluntarily became a human being. He didn't stop being God. He didn't uh, stop having any of his divine attributes. Uh, But he did add to his divinity. He added humanity to it. And he voluntarily took upon himself all of the limitations that are associated with being a human being right it's so so to see that jesus came into the world you know if we if it's it's if um if human if human beings were ever to colonize mars right like people are trying if we were to somehow make our way to mars and and uh you know whatever like terraform it and make it to where we could live there and establish a civilization there we would have come into that planet which is pretty pretty uh pretty remarkable but it doesn't there's not it's not like it requires humility for human beings to go to mars right because it's not we're not above it we're not different than it we're not outside of it but you know so so that would probably not be a, an an apt illustration for the incarnation but imagine um I maybe I've used this illustration more uh, an author uh, who's writing a story, writing a novel, and then somehow, uh, you know, was able to write himself into the story that he was writing as a character in it, who now all of a sudden is subject to all of the limitations of what it means to be a character in that story. Prior to that, he was the author of the story. He was in control of the story. He was over it. He wasn't in it. Nothing, you know, he was outside of it, bigger than it. And so for that author to leave that place of author or authority and to enter into the story that he was writing would take a great deal of humility to step into this thing that he had created. And that's probably a more apt illustration for what happened when Jesus came into the world. He was entering into a thing that he created and, and humbly taking upon himself all of the limitations that are necessary to be a part of this created thing. So Jesus came into the world, um, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So so as much humility as it takes for Jesus to enter into uh, a world that he created, which is a remarkable amount of humility, for the sovereign, eternal God to take upon himself that kind of finiteness and that kind of vulnerability, it takes even more humility for Jesus to enter into this world knowing that the world was not going to know him. The world was not going to care that he was there. He was going to be born as a, 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 a poor baby 
a marginalized peasant in Galilee and all of the who's who that live all over the world weren't going to notice or care that he was, was there. Verse 11, he came into his own and his own people did not receive him. So the sovereign God who created everything, who was rightly deserving of uh, eternal, unending worship and praise from everyone in the entire world, uh, that sovereign God entered into that world, and instead of being greeted with worship and praise, nobody noticed, nobody cared. Right? If you're like, you know, imagine you're the President of the United States, you get some call to, you know, come to some grand opening of some library or museum or something like that, and they spend weeks coordinating with your staff, and there's going to be photo ops and, you know, meet and greets, and here's how we're going to handle all the logistics of all the crowds and everyone that's going to want to shake your hand and get your autograph, and you arrive, and nobody notices and nobody cares. They're like, hey, the president is here, and nobody, everyone's, you know, too busy you know, playing with their phone or doing whatever, and nobody notices, nobody, right? You're expecting this grand presidential welcome, and nobody knows and nobody cares. Jesus Christ is God, the eternal, sovereign Lord, creator of all things. If anyone ever deserved a grand welcome celebration, if anyone ever deserved to be received and celebrated, it was Jesus. And he came into the world that he created, and no one noticed, and no one cared. In fact, it's not just that no one noticed, no one cared, as if it was this, like, neutral response. There was actually, uh, the response was one of resentment, and hostility, and, and rejection. He was despised and rejected. He was stricken and smitten and afflicted and acquainted with grief by the very people that he created, the very people that he was coming to save. So to, for Jesus to enter into a world that he created takes a substantial amount of humility. And for Jesus to enter into that world knowing full well that the people he's coming to save are going to uh, be at best indifferent to him or at worst hostile to him takes an incredible amount of humility, an infinite amount of humility. And what's remarkable, so, because then you think, so it would be, it would have been entirely reasonable, entirely appropriate, entirely understandable for Jesus to come into the world his own people did not receive him, and that would prompt a response. Well, I'm, I'm out. I'm just. I'm going to leave. Right? If I go, some if someone invites me to their home, and I go over, and they don't come to the door to answer it when I get there, they show no sign, no interest in me being there at all. In fact, they're swearing at me and telling me to leave and get off their property. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go home. I don't have to be here. You invited me, right? I was coming here to spend time with you, and now I'm just going to leave. Jesus could very easily have arrived in the world and said, these people are beyond repair. There's nothing that can be done for them. I've got better things to do, better ways to spend my time. I'm certainly not going to work 
at great cost to myself to save a bunch of people who don't want to be saved, a bunch of people who hate me and who are going to actively resist my efforts to save them. Most people would just leave. Jesus did not leave. Verse 12, Jesus stayed. But to all who receive him, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. <clears throat> so the, the reason, the mission, the purpose that Jesus came into the world was to save his people so that they could be reconciled to God and adopted as children of God. As you work your way through the rest of the Gospel of John, that you'll notice that one motif we mentioned of light and darkness. But there's, uh, there's something else that, that John uh, kind of unpacks and, and kind of establishes as he works through his gospel, which is that um, it's not just that, we are, that the world is marked by darkness, but it's that the people in the world are separated from God and alienated from God. And we're actually following after and walking in the pattern of Satan, the, the devil. In John 8, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, if you know the truth, then the truth will set you free. And the people that are there are offended. How dare this man Jesus tell us that we need to be set free? Right? They say, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Who do you think you are saying that you will set us free? And Jesus says, I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you are doing what you have heard from your father. You are doing the works of your father. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense. We are Israelites. We only have one father. Our father is God. And Jesus says, no, God is not your father. You are of your father, the devil. So the, the, the landscape that John is setting up is that God created all things. He's sovereign over the world. God created humanity in his image to be his children, and humanity promptly sinned against God, rebelled against God, and followed the way of Satan. In the garden in Genesis 3, Satan comes up to humanity and says, you can't trust God, right? God is saying that he wants good for you, but he does not want good for you. God wants to keep you under his thumb. God wants to enslave you. God wants to force you to live this terrible life where he's at the center and you don't get to be at the center. You'll be happy if you're at the center of your own life and you'll be miserable if God is at the center of your life, right? The, 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 the good life that I'm telling you, you deserve to live. No right, no wrong, no rules, do whatever you want. You don't have to answer to anyone. You don't owe anything to anyone. You'll be totally free to do whatever you want. You'll be your own God and you'll be truly happy. God is saying that happiness is found in a life that revolves around him. That's a lie. I'm telling you that true happiness is found in a life that revolves around you. That's the message of Satan in the garden. Humanity was presented with this choice. Do I live for God like God says to do? Or do I live for myself like Satan is telling me to do? And the choice that Adam made 
And the choice that every single human being that would come after him made was to follow the way of Satan, to hear, in the words of Jesus, to, to hear the words of and to do the work of our father, the devil. So God is the father of every human being in the sense that he created them. But when humanity sinned against God, we effectively ran away and chose to have a different father, chose to have Satan as our father instead of having God as our father. And John here is saying that even though that's all taken place, we have an opportunity through the person and work of Jesus, we have an opportunity to be adopted back into the family of God, as it were, to have God as our father once again, instead of having Satan as our father. And the way that we do that is simple. It's to receive him and believe in his name. To believe in his name means to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, right? To believe that Jesus is God who came into the, into the world, right? And to believe that Jesus did what he said he came to do, which is die on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, to satisfy the wrath of God and to save his people. So, so believe uh, in Jesus's name, to believe that he is who he said he was and did what he said he came to do, but also to receive him, to, to, to personally, right? It's, it's one thing to believe that Jesus, you know, as an, as an act of intellectual assent. It's one thing to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, but to receive him is something different. It's something deeper. It's, it's, uh, it's not just believing that Jesus is who he said he was, but it's, it's trusting and accepting and receiving. I, I want the sacrifice that Jesus accomplished to atone for my sin. I want to take that on myself. I want to enjoy the benefits of that. I want to be judged on the basis of Jesus and his sacrifice rather than on the basis of myself and my own works and my own merit. So to everyone who believes in Jesus, that he is who he says he was, and to everyone who receives what Christ has done for them, Jesus gives the right to become children of God. Specifically, verse 13, children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. This is a, an idea that John's going to unpack more in John chapter 3, the idea of being born again or being born a second time. Everyone's, everyone's born once physically as a baby when their mother gives birth to them. That's what it means to be born of blood or to be born of the will of the flesh or to be born of the will of man. But Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, he says that if you want to, be, uh, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born a second time. Uh, you know, not born of the flesh, but born of the spirit, not born of the will of man, but born of, of God. That's what John is alluding to here. That's what Jesus is going to unpack further in John 3, is this idea of being born again, born a second time, uh, as we, you know, trust in Jesus and are, are you know, brought into the kingdom of, of God. It's where we get the doctrine of regeneration. We got a lot of a lot of doctrines we're unpacking this morning, right? The incarnation, now the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration means to be born a second time, right? Re means again or another a, a second time. And generate means to create or start or give birth to. So regeneration means to be born a second time. 
So verse 12, John's saying that in order to be adopted into the family of God, we have to believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus and receive the work that he has accomplished for us. And then in verse 13, he's saying that in order for that to happen, in order for someone to trust in Jesus, your heart has to be regenerated. You have to be given new birth, new life. The Holy Spirit has to come into your heart and give you a brand new heart, as it were, right? Your old heart is dead and hard like stone. And so God has to take that heart and he has to regenerate it. And he has to give you a new heart uh, that's softened to the gospel and that's alive and that wants to trust in Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts and gives us new life and new birth, we can then trust in Jesus and receive who he is and what he has done for us. New man, new woman, new heart, trusting in Jesus. Righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. Our sin is imputed to Jesus. We're adopted into the family of God. God is now our father, and we have been given the right to be called children of, of God. That's what we see in these first five verses, right? Jesus comes into the world. Jesus is rejected by the world. Jesus invites anyone who will believe in him and who will trust in him to be adopted into his family, to be welcomed into his kingdom, provided that they are born a second time, provided that they are regenerated through the, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their, in their hearts. That's the first five verses, light of the world coming into the world. The, the rest of this passage, starting in verse 14, we see Jesus is the word that has become flesh. And what exactly, how exactly we benefit from Jesus, the word, having become flesh on our behalf. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. <coughs> so we're calling back up to how John began his gospel, chapter one, verse one, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So Jesus, we've already established is co-eternal with the father, fully divine, united with the Father. And now verse 14 is saying, Jesus Christ, the Word, God the Son, the Word became flesh, became a human being, dwelt among us, came into the world that he created, right? the world that we inhabit. Jesus came here and lived among us as one of us. It's the doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, two weeks ago when we looked at the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, we read from a, a creed from the early church called the Athanasian Creed, where the early church was essentially clarifying and articulating what it thought about the Trinity. And it was kind of denying uh, all sorts of heresies and false teaching around the doctrine of the Trinity and kind of specifying what the church believes about the Trinity. That was the Athanasian Creed. There's another creed that the church established specifically about the doctrine of the incarnation called the Chalcedonian Creed or the Chalcedonian Definition. So you can Google that if you, if you want. But again, the, the idea was, you know, we'd already, you know, unlike Athanasian Creed, which is dealing with the Trinity, this is the Chalcedonian Creed dealing with the incarnation, you know, the nature of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Was he God? Was he man? 
If so, how do those two interact together? There were a lot of false teachings at the time that were saying things like, Jesus is not God, he's a man. We can tell because, you know, we look at him and we see him. Or they were saying, well, Jesus is God because he said he was God, but that must mean that he's not really a man or he's not fully human like we are because how could he be if he were, if he were God? And so the Chalcedonian creed or the Chalcedonian definition kind of presses back against those false teachings and says things like, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is truly God and truly man. Jesus is of the same essence as the Father with respect to his divinity. And he is of the same essence as us with respect to his humanity. He is like us in all respects except that he is without sin. Jesus is begotten before all ages of the Father with respect to his divinity but he was born in time and space of the Virgin Mary with respect to his humanity. He has two natures, humanity and divinity, and they exist together without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. The two natures are distinct and united at the same time. And the characteristics of each nature are preserved and come together to form one person and one subsistence. They are not parted or separated into two persons. Jesus is one and the same Son, the only begotten Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's from the Chalcedonian definition from the 5th century uh, AD, that Jesus is one person, but him, him as a singular person, he had two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, Nothing about Jesus' divinity negates his humanity, and nothing about his humanity negates his divinity. He's fully God, fully man, at the exact same time. Which, if you're, if you're yeah, interested in trivia, there's uh, that specific element of the incarnation that Jesus is fully God, fully man, together at the same time, is something that's called the hypostatic union. So, hypostasis... Uh, means subsistence or existence. And so the hypostatic union means that, that Jesus is one person, one existence, one subsistence, but he, he's united. There's two natures united together within him, the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, united together. So the word became flesh. The word that is God became flesh that is human being, and he dwelt among us, entered into time and space, entered into the world that he created. And then the result of Jesus having become a man, of the word having become flesh and entering into the world and dwelling among us, the result of that is that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So in the incarnation, God becomes a person, and gives us, as human beings, we now have a new, a new access to God that we did not previously have. God has, has always existed all throughout human history, and humanity has always struggled to see or understand exactly who God is and what he is like. Hebrews 1 says that uh, God would speak to people in different times, 
at, or at different times in different ways, right? Moses and the burning bush, or Daniel and all of his dreams and visions. You can see uh, descriptions of uh, descriptions of the glory of God in places like Isaiah chapter six and Ezekiel chapter one and Ezekiel chapter ten. So we get all of these different ways at different times of God speaking to and revealing Himself to people, but none of them were were full or clear. None of them kind of were the final definitive revelation from God. They were just these kind of glimpses that we got here and there. And Colossians 2 says that in Jesus, the fullness of deity as God who has become a man is uniquely able to reveal the glory of God to human beings in a way that had not and could not be revealed to them before, right? When we look at Jesus, see right, the fullness of who God is, the glory of God, and the way that John describes it is uh, that that glory is full of grace and truth. <coughs> fully gracious, right? Fully devoted to treating sinners better than they deserve to be treated and fully devoted to truth fully devoted to treating everyone rightly and in accordance with God's perfect justice and demands for justice and punishment. Jesus shows us that God is totally and utterly devoted to both grace and truth at the same time. Most most everyone you know is probably going to lean one way or the other. They, They... emphasize grace at the expense of truth, or they emphasize truth at the expense of grace. Churches that emphasize truth, right, preach a lot about sin and repentance, and this is what you have to believe, and this is how you have to live, and there's no excuses, and there's no gray areas. Governments that are, you know, devoted to truth as opposed to grace have lots of laws with stiff penalties and mandatory Minimum, uh, some people emphasize grace. We care about people, listening to people, with people, helping people. Churches that are big on grace think a lot about how they can be warm and welcoming to people who are struggling and hurting, how to help them feel at home and accepted and not feel judged or shamed or looked down on. Governments that are big on grace have lots of social programs to rehabilitate people and help them overcome whatever it was in their life that landed him in the difficult position that they are in. Everyone, to one degree or another, seems to be devoted to grace or to truth. And yet, John tells us that Jesus reveals the glory of God to us, and he specifically reveals that God is devoted to both grace and truth. That God is more committed to truth and justice and righteousness than anyone, right? The, imagine the most truth-oriented person or pastor or politician or talk shows, whatever, right? The person that you can think of, that you can dream up in your mind, that's the most committed to truth and justice and righteousness, and God is infinitely more committed to truth than that person. And at the exact same time, imagine the person that you can think of that's most committed to grace and empathy 
and compassion, the most gracious, compassionate person you could ever imagine, and God is more committed to grace than that person. So he is simultaneously infinitely committed to truth on the one hand and grace on the other hand, both at the exact same time. And just like the hypostatic union, right? Nothing about, about Jesus' divinity negates his humanity. Nothing about his humanity negates his divinity. Nothing about God's commitment to grace negates his commitment to truth. And nothing about God's commitment to truth negates his commitment to grace. God loves what is right, cares about what is right. He's offended by sin. He hates sin. He would never, ever let sin be ignored or go unpunished. And God loves people. He cares about people. And he will go to great lengths to secure their salvation and see to it that they are saved and reconciled to himself. God is marked by grace and truth. We looked at verse 15 last week, John the Baptist, and kind of saw that he, you know, in this one verse, he's, he's testifying about the divinity of Jesus, that he came before him, but also about his willingness to defer and to point away from himself and to point to Jesus as the Savior instead of trying to uh, have glory for himself, right? Jesus ranks before me. He's more important to me than me, and Jesus is fully divine and that he was before me. Then verse 16, for from his fullness, from the fullness of Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. Meaning uh, grace on top of grace, right? One gracious gift after uh, another. The idea with verse 16 is that God is so gracious with his people that we as the people of God are continually experiencing grace. We are continually being treated better than we deserve to be treated, right? Every breath that you take is a gift of grace from God. Every moment that you're not experiencing conscious punishment for your sin is a gift of grace from God. Every time that you get something that you need, or that you desire, that's a gift of grace from God. Your life, your family, your spouse, your kids, right? Grace from God. The nature of the Christian life is that we are constantly experiencing grace from God, one blessing after another, or as John puts it, grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and through Jesus Christ. So, Jesus is the definitive kind of God. This Jesus is the definitive revelation of who God is. There were all kinds of other kind of, um, you know, um, there were all, all kinds of other revelations of who God is along the way, these kind of periodic revelations, but Jesus is the final authoritative revelation of who God is. We could learn things about God from all kinds of things in the Old Testament, one of which was the law being given through Moses. We can, we can learn about God from what we see in the Old Covenant at Mount Sinai, 
the old covenant that was mediated through Moses at Mount Sinai. But from, from the very outset, the old covenant that was inaugurated by Moses was always expected to be replaced by another covenant that is newer and better. The old covenant was never intended to be the final word on who God is. It was intended to give way to a new covenant that would uh, be the final word on who God is because that new covenant is inaugurated by and mediated by Jesus as opposed to by Moses. So the old covenant, characterized by law, we see things like do this and you will live, right? Uh, here is what you have to do to please God. If you do it, God will bless you. If you do not, then here are the ways that you can expect judgment and discipline from God. Law, works, wages, punishment. That's the old covenant inaugurated by and mediated by Moses. But Jesus inaugurates a new covenant that is better in every sense. Jeremiah 31 uh, kind of walks through how the new covenant is better than and superior to the old covenant. The book of Hebrews, the entire book of Hebrews is about how the ministry of Jesus in the new covenant is better than and superior to anything that came before it in the old covenant. So we see things like in the old covenant, uh, the law was imposed on people from the outside in. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to live do this and you will live. But in the new covenant, the law is put within us. It's written on our hearts so that we can obey God. We don't have to obey God because we have to. We can obey God because we want to. Our desires have been regenerated and made new. In the old covenant, there were some people that knew God and some people that didn't. There were some people that believed in God and some people that didn't. It was this kind of inherently mixed community of believers and unbelievers. But in the new covenant, everyone can know the Lord. Everyone can be restored into a right relationship with the Lord. They can experience his grace and his presence through the forgiveness of their sins. The old covenant was a covenant of law and works, but the new covenant was a covenant of grace and truth. The new covenant is better than the old covenant in every sense. So verse 14, Jesus is the word who has revealed to us the glory of God, specifically the grace and truth of God. Verse 16, right? Jesus gives his people grace upon grace upon grace. Verse 17, what Jesus gives us in the new covenant is far better than anything that came before him in the old covenant. And then finally, verse 18 no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And this is a tricky verse, kind of because of the way the ESV renders it. Um, you're not, it's, it's kind of tricky to figure out, well, like, who is each noun and pronoun referring to? Because the Trinity is enigmatic anyway, so when you see God, you're like, what does that mean? And when you see he and him, trying to figure out what exactly it means. And so um, one key to kind of figuring it out is that um, this, this word, uh, after the semicolon, the only God, is the same word 
that's used up in verse 14, uh, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. So the only Son from the Father is the same word as the only God. Uh, so it just it was it was uh, rendered a little strangely. So a, a more accurate rendering might be um, where, where do I have it here to see that to say that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God. He is at the Father's side, and He is therefore able to reveal the Father to us and to make the Father known to us. So, first clause is kind of independent, exists all by itself. No one has ever seen God. And that word God presumably is referring to just the just God, the, the entire no, no specific person of the Trinity, but just God uh, in general. And so that's a fairly uncontroversial statement, at least in the first century. Uh, you know, uh, no one has ever seen God. It's a generally accepted principle uh, in Judaism. We may have caught glimpses of who God is, but we've never seen God fully and completely. But then the second kind of, so that's, that's its own independent clause. And then this next one, the only God or the one and only Son who is himself God and who is at the Father's side. So that is, that's language similar, reminiscent of chapter 1, verse 1, or 1 and 2, right? When it says that the Word was with God and the Word was God. So this kind of uh, strange way of, of, you know, kind of referring to both Jesus and the Father as being united as one God and Jesus and the Father as being distinct, separate persons within the Godhead. This is, this is John saying, the one and only Son who is himself God who is also at the Father's side. And so so we have kind of a reference to the Trinity, and then the result of the one and only Son who is God and who is at the Father's side is that the one and only Son can make the Father known to us. He, the Son, has made him, the Father, known to to us, to, to his people. Right? John is saying that, because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, because he has existed for all of eternity in relationship with God the Father, because Jesus is God, united with the Father, and because he is a distinct person from God within the Trinity, he has a unique vantage point of being both God and co-eternal with the Father. He has a unique vantage point, and he is uniquely able to reveal to us who God is. Moses can tell us things about God. David can tell us things about God. Elijah and all the prophets can tell us things about God, but none of them can give us the full picture of who God is because none of them existed as God or with the Father in the Trinity for all of eternity. Only Jesus has done that. So only Jesus can give us the true, real, deep, definitive revelation of who God is. One New Testament scholar articulates it in this way. He says, as God, Jesus is one with the Father, and as the one and only Son, Jesus is eternally distinct from the Father. And on the basis of this combination of both essential unity with the Father and personal difference from the Father. On the basis of that combination, 
John 1.18 implies that the Son has some unique, special kind of sight or insight into the Father that no creature ever has had or can have. And it is on this basis that the Son, in his incarnate state, is able to make the Father known. And that's really the heart of the doctrine of the incarnation. That's the essence of what John is trying to communicate in these 10 verses, is that Jesus is God who has become a man, and therefore because he is both God and man, he is uniquely able to reveal God to men. He is uniquely able to reveal the glory of God to us, the grace of God to us, the truth of God to us. Apart from Christ, we cannot truly know any of those things. We can conjecture and we can kind of make our best educated guess, but we can't know them truly and fully. But it's only through Jesus, who is fully divine and fully human, that we can know truly who God is and experience the glory of God. Because of, because of the incarnation and because of the hypostatic union, we can know who God is, we can be reconciled to God by believing in him and trusting in him. Right? Verse, verses 9 and following, Jesus is the light that has come into the world so that we can be adopted as children of God. Verses 14 and following, Jesus is the word who has become flesh and dwelt among us so that we can see and experience the glory of, of God. And our calling as the people of God, particularly in the Christmas season, is to behold together the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And then it's to receive him and trust in him so that we can be saved from our sin and adopted into the family of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the doctrine of the incarnation, that God became a man. We thank you for the doctrine of the hypostatic union, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. We thank you that you came into the world, that you became flesh and dwelt among us in order to save us. And Lord, we pray that as your people, we pray that we could behold the glory of Christ and trust in Jesus as our great God and Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.